Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. My name's Tyson. I know a fair few of you, but not all of you, so I'll just tell you a quick bit about myself. Um, I um, am an elder in training across the City Light Churches. We've been um, coming to City Light since our first child was born, so about three and a bit years now. Uh, we're regulars more so at Glenelg, um, but we love City Light, and it's a real... It's a real blessing to be able to kind of come and share a word with you guys tonight. Um, So I'll jump straight into it, I reckon. Um, What we're going to do tonight is we're going to go on a bit of a journey through Isaiah. So we're in the book of Isaiah, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, We're going to jump around in these um, four chapters a little bit. So I would love it if you guys could have your own Bibles uh, open, if it's on your phone or however you read Scripture, have it ready to go. Um, So you can kind of see how we navigate through this tonight and how things fit together. In case you're new here or if you've missed the last few weeks, we're at week four of what I think is going to be an 18-week journey or series in the book of Isaiah. Uh, If you're really new to church um, or if you're really new to the Bible, then firstly, welcome. It's awesome to have you guys here tonight. Um, And let me just catch you up fairly quickly on where we're at and what the basic context of these stories is that we're going to look at. Um, So being in the Old Testament, Isaiah is a book set quite a long time before the life and the ministry of Jesus here on earth. Uh, More specifically, it was a bit over 700 years BC. And in this time, God had a people group known as the Israelites. And he, God loved and had a really special relationship with these guys, known as a covenantal relationship, kind of like how we see marriage in a way, um, just this really unique and special relationship relationship. But the Israelites would would regularly turn away. They would disobey uh, and run away from God. Uh, The Israelites had been around for several thousand years before this as well, but uh, they were kind of united in a new way under the first king, King Saul, in about a thousand BC. Uh, After King Saul, there was King David, who I'm sure we all know about, and then there was King Solomon. Uh, However, after King Solomon's uh, reign in about 900 BC, Uh, the nation actually split into two main groups. Uh, There was the northern kingdoms, uh, which kept its title of Israel, and had the capital of Samaria. And then there was the southern kingdom of Judah, um, which had the capital of Jerusalem. And Judah is kind of where we get the name Jew from. Uh, So we enter the book of Isaiah almost 200 years on now from this split. So in about 700 B.C., between North and South, Israel and Judah. If you were here last week, Josh opened up to Isaiah 6. And if you remember, uh, it told the story of where it all kind of started for Isaiah, his, his ministry and calling. Isaiah has this inc- uh, incredible vision of the Lord and this seraphim, this angelic being, comes down and touches his lips with a burning coal, making him completely clean. Isaiah is then given this calling, this task, to uh, declare God's message to his people who won't hear or understand until one day when they've been completely cleansed and purified. We're going to jump in straight, pretty much immediately after where we left off last week um, by starting to look at Isaiah now chapter 7 verses 1 to 13, which takes place about five years on um, from this calling that we looked at in chapter 6. And if you remember what's going on at the time, the northern kingdom of Israel um, had already thrown itself into some toxic alliances. 
It had essentially become occupied uh, by a nation called Aram and um, completely neglected the voice of the Lord. So now here sits Judah, the southern kingdom, and it's up to its 12th king, King Ahaz. So where we pick up in, in this story is it's at a defining moment in not only in King Ahaz's life and leadership, but in the very uh, future of the Jewish people. So we're going to look at Isaiah 7, verses 1 to 13 to start with. And in, um, in the passage, if it says um, Ephraim, that's referring to the northern kingdoms of Israel. I'll read it for us. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, Be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smouldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up to Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Stop there. So the pressure is on. Ahaz, king of Judah, is, is freaking out, isn't he? I mean, the united front of northern Israel and Aram is trying to bully him uh, into joining joining forces with them or else, you know, um, being overthrown. They even at some point attack Judah uh, without success, probably just taunting them. Uh, But it works because King Ahaz is is really freaking out uh, that they're going to come back in greater force, that they're going to take over Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, So what what is he going to do? So Isaiah goes to Ahaz, and speaking from the Lord, he says this, Calm down. Be quiet. They have plotted harm against you, but the Lord will not allow it. It will not occur. And not only that, but they themselves will be destroyed. You'd kind of think that this would offer some level of comfort or reassurance to Ahaz. You know, he was, he's being offered deliverance and safety, And he's even being offered a sign, 
uh, from God to prove that it was actually God speaking and not just um, Isaiah making things up or like many of the wise people of the time were doing. But look at Ahaz's response to this. Verse 12, it says, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord. Now, we need to be careful not to be mistaken here because it kind of looks like this is a humble, you know, a faith-filled thing to respond, but it actually isn't. Refusing a, an offered sign like Ahaz, um, like Ahaz is at this defining moment in, his king, in the kingship of God's people, it isn't humble trust in God, but it's actually unbelief parading or pretending to be religious humility. See, God is offering to prove himself faithful. He's offering to prove himself true and present with Ahaz, but Ahaz doesn't want to trust God. He doesn't want to put his faith in, and hope in the Lord because to do that means God's plans would get in the way of his own plans. You know, to do that, to accept this sign that God is offering and, and that God is with them means to kind of, you know, give up control give up control of what he thinks is best, of what he thinks is the safest and the best uh, way forward. And to say, you know, no thanks in this context, where God is offering to prove himself true and in control, it sounds humble. It even sounds biblical. But really what Ahaz is doing is he's doing this. He's going, la, 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 to God, isn't he? Like a child, a bit. Ahaz wasn't a stupid guy. In fact, he was a really clever leader and politician because beyond this northern threat that's coming upon them, he saw another way out. He saw another way out of the situation. And that way out is Assyria. Assyria, the nation that have been called the Nazis of the ancient Near East. Ahaz saw the power and the potential of the king and the nation of Assyria, and he judged them to be a greater security than the Lord and his promises. And as history goes on to tell us, this nation's saviour of Assyria eventually became Judah's executioner. Motur in his commentary writes this. He says, Ahaz may have had every political skill, logic, diplomatic experience, all the facts of the real world. But when the people of God operate by what stands to reason than than by what proceeds from faith, when they seek safety in resources and policies and powers of the world, in this case, the king of Assyria, instead of the true king, the Lord Almighty, then the things they trust in guarantee their calamity. See, the problem here isn't that Ahaz used his intelligence and his diplomacy skills to make what he thought were wise and smart decisions in his leadership. You know, that's a good thing to do sometimes. But the heart of the problem here is that he didn't trust God, despite centuries and time and time again of God proving himself faithful and true, and even being offered a sign to show that this was one of those times. Ahaz had a divided heart and he was driven and directed by not his faith but his fear and his pride. You know, he wanted to be in control. He wanted to be the sole captain of Judah's destiny. He wanted the glory for himself. 
But before we sit uh, too harshly in judgment of Ahaz, I think we need to take a, just a moment of self-reflection. Because if we are truly honest, if we look at the deeper issue here of, of not believing God at his word, are we really any better? What I mean is, I don't think we have to look far sometimes, probably even in our own lives, um, in our own situations, to see examples of this kind of thing in us and around us. Maybe for you it's ambition, or pleasure, or comfort, or money, or escapism, or social status. Try this example. I mean, in Psalm 16 we read that in you, God, there is fullness of joy. In you, God, there is fullness of joy. But how much do we really believe that? How much do we trust God with our joy and our satisfaction in life? Or how quickly do we run to escapism or to quick fix pleasures or you know, the approval of others or the comforts of this world to make us feel better about ourselves rather than running to God? How willing are you to relinquish control and really trust your future, your career, your spouse, your kids, your money, your relationships, your joy to God? I mean, I don't mean this in a really vague theological sense either. I mean in real life, you know, day in, day out, everyday living, everyday priorities. And I say this because I know my own heart. I mean, I've been a Christian about 12 years now and One thing I've come to see is that apart from God's intervention and God's grace in my life, my heart is fickle and indecisive and insecure and self-seeking. Apart from God's grace in my life, I would always take the seemingly safer and more comfortable and more pleasurable option, kind of like Ahaz does in this example. And something I think we can become experts at, especially if we've been around church for a little while, is like Ahaz making our unbelief sound plausible. In other words, convincing ourselves and convincing others that what makes us feel good, what we want to do, is actually in line, what God, in line with what God desires for us um, when really it isn't, and we're twisting uh, God to fit our own desires. I mean, there's lots of extreme examples of this all through history. One example is, um, if you know much about World War II history, the effect that the Nazi regime had on the German church you know, twisting of scripture and perversion of God's name to justify horrible acts and deeds. But it's also, and there's some extreme examples, but it's also something I think we can do in ourselves and we can um, easily buy into to try and justify and make our unbelief sound plausible, sound convincing. You know, for Ahaz, in this example, it was, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord. How about these few, a few ones to think about? You know, God wants me to be happy, so he wouldn't want me to do dot, 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 insert thing that makes you uncomfortable. Or, you know, the Bible doesn't say specifically anything about dot, 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 so it must be okay to do. Or one more. You know, there are other people who have more money and more skills and more time and more resources than me, so it's really their job to dot, 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 help the poor, befriend the unlovely, fight for justice, endure suffering, whatever it is. So like Ahaz, are we justifying our unbelief? It's an important question we need to wrestle with. And if so, how are you justifying your unbelief? 
I'd suggest it's a really good one to chat about in DG this week, and, and um, especially if some people have the privilege of hindsight and can look back and share examples of how God's opened their eyes to this type of thing. But the story goes on, and what we begin to see next is the cost, the cost of Ahaz's unbelief. So King Ahaz decides to trust in his own diplomacy skills, and he, sets, he sells out to Assyria uh, rather than trusting God. Yet again, as Isaiah prophesied, God keeps his word and he does protect Judah. And he does it through the Assyrians with whom um, Ahaz has made this alliance. But the problem we begin to see is that this alliance is far more and far worse than they bargained for. So we're going to pick up now in um, chapter 8, look at verses 5 to 8. says, the Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remalalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on, on into Judah and it will overflow and pass on reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So here we start to see the, um, the cost, you know, the consequences of trusting in the world rather than trusting in God. In this, um, in this passage, the, the slowly flowing waters of Shiloh, um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but Shiloh, um, what that's referring to is the spring of, of fresh water which the Lord provided for his people. It was from outside the walls of Jerusalem. And this spring ran overground in conduits um, into the city. It was their main water supply. But from a worldly or from a military perspective, it was vulnerable. And, and what this, this vulnerable water supply represents is way, the way of faith in the Lord. And by contrast, the river Euphrates was mighty and abundant and safe. The river Euphrates in this passage is the king of Assyria. And again, Isaiah is saying here that the people, rather than trusting in the Lord's provision, appealed to this mighty river. They appealed to this human king. But what happens? It says it will pour into Judah. It will flood over it and sweep through, flooding its banks and the entire land. Now The Assyrians have been called the Nazis of the ancient Near East, and this is the type of people that... Ahaz was making this alliance with to try and save himself in his kingship. And the saviour of Judah became its executioner. And history tells us over time this is essentially what unfolded. So the way of faith may seem to the human eye full of insecurity and hazard. But the believer sees this and says, he is faithful who promised. To choose the world is to be overwhelmed by the world. And to get an idea of what this looked like over time, we're going to jump forward now a page or two into the second half of chapter 9, where Isaiah this time is speaking to not Judah, but to the northern kingdoms who were God's people and are God's people, but long ago had departed the way of the Lord, had um, sold out to the world and are now being overwhelmed and overrun by the world. So 
So Isaiah 9, 8 to 10, then we're going to jump to 18 to 21, and then the first two verses of chapter 10. So it says, The Lord has sent word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Chapter 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who write oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. See, what's happening in this, in this people group, in this kingdom, is, is not a wonderfully free and flourishing people, is it? You know, this is not a people that are liberated from the oppressive clutches of religion. This was not a people enlightened to a greater or a better way of living. It might have seemed that way uh, to start with, and I'm sure there was a lot of appeal um, and even maybe felt liberating to depart from the way of faith in God, just as it did to Ahaz. But here, decades on from that, we see a lost, a rebellious and a seriously depraved people who were full of pride, who were writing oppressive laws, who were keeping the poor from getting a fair trial, who were depriving the needy from justice and utterly abusing the widows and the fatherless. I mean, man, this is, this is really sad. I mean, this is what God's people have become despite God's prophets for generations calling them back to him. But what can we learn from this? One thing I think we all need to wrestle with is, from the story is that the, the decisions we make now in our lives as individuals, uh, as families, as a community, uh, can have enormous effects and consequences in the future, both in the good and in the bad. You know, whether to really trust God with our lives or else just go with whatever feels good or is easiest or what everyone else is doing, these things can have big consequences and effects on your life and your family and on this community uh, in the future. You know, it's quite, actually quite arrogant to say that small compromises or indulging or just ignoring or brushing over sin in your life now, or like Ahaz, just not wanting to know what the Lord's will and plans are, that that won't fester and that won't cause stacks more pain and struggle and suffering in two or five or 50 years' time, or even after you've left this earth. 
It's easy to judge the Israelites for their ignorance, for their disobedience uh, to a God who had clearly rescued them time and time and time again. But keep in mind, when we look at a few chapters of Scripture, uh, entire lifetimes, entire generations have sometimes passed in just the flick of a few pages. So we need to heed the reality of the weight and the danger that brushing over or indulging in things that just aren't good for us can put us into. So if there's things in your life you're guilty or you're convicted or you're even just not sure about uh, something you're doing or you're not doing or you're believing even, don't put it off any longer. Bring it to someone that you know loves you and loves Jesus. Bring it to your DG and ask them to pray for you and, to, and bring it to God and let him heal you. you know, it might be a tough thing to go through, but it will be worth it. See, as we read through Isaiah, and as you discover more of the Old Testament, it's pretty incredible what God does to Israel, to his chosen people. You know, they run away, don't they? And his, he disciplines them and brings them back. And they run away again, and he disciplines them and he brings them back to himself again. And this running away is, to, is never to actually something better even if it seemed like it, but it's always to brokenness and to systemic corruption. And we're at a point where, as verse 8 says, even in his discipline, they don't turn to him. Even, as it says, that where the bricks fall, they just rebuild it themselves without consulting God, with no regard for the Lord. Even when the trees fall, they replace them themselves in their own pride, in their own arrogance of heart. They're never satisfied in the eating of their own flesh, which means they're basically destroying themselves by their own pride, by their arrogance and their unbelief. Their unwillingness to come back to him who loves them and who cries out to them. You know, sometimes life flatly sucks, doesn't it? And at face value, God might seem to be the nastiest, most horrible bully in the universe. But as much as TV and culture and maybe even some really tough life experience can lead us to think, God isn't sitting in heaven gleefully giggling over who he can zap next or be really nasty to. You know, God is the most loving person in the Bible. And it's because of this love that he is also the angriest. Ray Ortland writes that the wrath or the anger of God is his resolute opposition to all evil. His love will never make peace with our evil and disobedience because his wrath, as well as his love, is perfect. I like this analogy. It's like the solemn determination of a surgeon cutting away the cancer which is killing his patient or a mother's fierce protection of her infant in the face of danger. You see, we matter to him you matter to him. God is love, but God couldn't be love without his anger and without his wrath against sin. This was true for the Israelites two and a half thousand years ago, and it's true for his children today. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, it talks about the fact that the discipline of the Lord in our lives, whilst being tough and painful, is actually ultimately for our good, that we may share in his holiness. 
So maybe if you're in a tough season at the moment, whatever that looks like for you, it can feel like God is silent. It can even feel like he's abandoned you. But can I just suggest that maybe, in a sense, the opposite is true? See, I don't think God is delighting in our struggles and in our suffering, but is he with us in our suffering? Is there some purpose or value or hope to come out of our struggle and our suffering? Absolutely. We only need to look to the cross of Christ for the greatest example of this in all history. And this is where we're going to land tonight. So far we've seen that Ahaz ignored uh, and didn't believe God, and that this unbelief had big effects on Judah down the track. We've seen that Israel, decades before this, had completely departed from God and was an absolute wreck of a nation, you know, completely deaf and ignorant to the loving discipline of the Lord. It all seems pretty grim and hopeless, doesn't it? Things are looking very bad. But if we go back to Isaiah 9, we're going to find out that ultimately God will have the final say, and it's very good news. So Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. It's our last passage for tonight. It reads, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his, upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and the throne of David and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here in amongst this mess, this absolute mess, which is Israel and soon to be Judah, right in amongst the chaos and the calamity of these situations, in amongst this disobedience, this hardness of heart, of the leaders and the, this trajectory these guys are on towards destruction. Isaiah speaks this, these words of hope. And this isn't just vague optimism. You know, it's not just a positive thinking exercise. This is hope that is real, that is present, that is happening because the hope isn't about us or about them. It doesn't come from them or from Israel's ability to, to be good and to sort themselves out. It says, last, verse of, um, last line of chapter, verse 7 says, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. I reckon it's almost comical the way God works sometimes. Maybe not to those guys at the time, but 
I mean, they're facing huge political and, and military pressure and threat, and God's like, I've got this, guys. I'm sending you a baby. Uh, how about a couple of hundred chariots or some spears, God, or, or some, you know, even a bow and arrow or something that we can use to just survive for another few years? But see, God might not always give us what we think we want, but he gives us what we truly need. And he had something far bigger, far more beautiful, far more important in mind than just getting them out of hot water time and time and time again for them to just disobey him again and again and again. See, this child that we just read about, this liberator will not only defeat the forces of evil, but put an end to conflict itself so we can step onto the battlefield after the victory is already won. As I was talking about Jesus, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. As I was saying here, that it's not about us, it's not about how moral we can be, it's not about our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. The essence of the gospel is that it is God's work for us. It is the zeal of his people. It is his love for the lost and the broken and rebellious people where Judah and Israel could find hope two and a half thousand years ago, and it's where we find hope today. Zeal is not a word we use much in in Aussie uh, conversation, uh, and what it means in this passage is really important to us for us tonight. So I'm just going to unpack it. See, zeal is like jealousy, but in a good sense of the word. Like a husband's jealousy or desire for the love of his wife, or the love that burns in the heart of a bride and groom. You know, zeal here is describing here the passion that God has for our salvation. Even in our disobedience, no matter how far you think you've fallen, God is not wishy-washy and lukewarm about you, but he's on fire for the triumph of his grace and for the salvation of his people. You know, this unbelief of Ahaz, the unbelief of the Israelites, the unbelief of you and me doesn't defeat a God who is zealous for the love and the affections of his people. God has enough zeal in himself to bring salvation and true freedom for all who would receive him. And he ultimately does this through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the good news from the gospel of of Isaiah, as we're calling it. And as we see it unfold in the New Testament, that though we have all rebelled, you know, we've all gone our own way, we've all disobeyed God, and He won't make peace and just brush over our sin, but the zeal of the Lord would accomplish something even greater. And that even as human depravity tries to snuff out this promised Messiah, that even in that moment when Jesus hung on the cross, it was underneath it all the zeal of the Lord holding him there, putting the wrath of God that we deserve onto Jesus so our sins could be taken away and we could be washed completely clean and stand before God in absolute perfection when we trust in Jesus. We look to and worship Jesus, whom Isaiah is so clearly speaking about. There's a passage in Romans that I love to come back to that says 
that whilst we were still sinners, not after we got our stuff together, but whilst we're still sinners, Christ died for us. One day when we are finally glorifying him perfectly, we will look at one another and say, we didn't do this, God did. This is the triumph of his zealous grace. This is the hope we look to when we're tempted. This is the hope we look to when we're stuffed up. This is the hope we look to when our lives are a mess. And this is the hope we look to when we're struggling and when we're suffering. So wherever you're at tonight, maybe you're a bit like Israel (laughs) and long ago you sold out to the things of the world. And you're here because life's gotten a bit messy and the things that you thought would give you joy and meaning and purpose are actually enslaving you. Or maybe you're a bit like King Ahaz and you know that God is speaking to you but you're trying to ignore it. You know, you don't really want to know what God is asking of you and you've become pretty good at making your excuses sound legit. If that's you at all, I just want to pray for you guys. That you would taste and see how good God is. That you would experience his love and his zeal for your heart and for your affections. And you would come to him, confess and be set free in his love for you. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Isaiah, for his faithfulness to your call, for the incredible truth that we can still um, receive from this nearly 3,000-year-old book about your love for your people that would send Jesus to the cross. Father, I pray wherever we're at tonight, if we are feeling far away from you or feeling near to you, Lord, that you would just enter in. You would remind us that uh, it is finished on the cross as we look to at Easter and as we look to whenever we meet together. Lord, that your, um, your work has triumphed. Father, I pray for um, yeah, just this, this people, Lord, this group, that you would just bless it, uh, that you would help it to grow and to be um, hungry for you, Lord. Lord, that you would give us hearts that would not Um, not go the way of the world, but would look to you for our hope and for our salvation and for our freedom and for our joy. Uh, That you would be doing a work in us to cut away the cancer of sin in our hearts and our lives. Lord, that you would help us to uh, be open with one another and with you about the stuff we're struggling with, uh, the stuff that we feel is holding us back, that we would be set free in your love. And Lord, I just pray that you would always remind us of the zeal that you have for your people, for the love that you have for the lost, for the desire you have to walk with us and to be with us and for us to be in intimacy with you. I just thank you, Lord, that you have broken down the barriers, that you have already won the war, that we can stand on the battlefield knowing that the victory is ours in Jesus pray that you would speak that to our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.